Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory in the heavens through the praise of children and infants. You have established a stronghold against your enemies to silence the foe and the avenger. When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars, which you have set in place, what is mankind that you are mindful of them, human beings that you care for them? You have made them a little lower than the angels and crowned them with glory and honor. You made them rulers over the works of your hands. You put everything under their feet, all flocks and herds and the animals of the wild, the birds in the sky and the fish in the sea, all that swim the paths of the seas. Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Good morning. So uh, if you're keeping track of where we've been in scriptures over the last few weeks, we're in the book of Genesis, and on this rainy Sunday, we're going to talk about Noah. So uh, it's uh, not lost upon me that we're there, but uh, I it just found it interesting when I came out of my house today. It's like, of course, of course. So uh, I'm going to ask you to turn your Bibles to uh, Genesis chapter 6. We're going to go right into it. So if you do not have a Bible, our ushers will be glad to provide you one. Uh, just simply put your hand up. And if you do not own a Bible, please keep this as a gift from us. We'd be glad to offer this to you as a gesture of where we feel like God has blessed us is with his living word. With that being said, uh, if you're new here, my name is Tony. I'm pastor here at LAFC, and we're in the book of Genesis because we believe that without Genesis, we wouldn't understand why we're worshiping a Savior that died on a cross, rose from the grave, and then declared a people unto himself by those who have faith in him to say that they, as a result of having faith in him, are saved. Saved from what? Why do we need saving? And why would Jesus need to come and do such a death? All of that can be found with context from out of the book of Genesis, which is the beginnings of things. And over the last several weeks, we learned from how God with creation created mankind in his image, imago Dei, the, the uh, Latin form of that phrase, that we are created like him that the ability to lead, the ability to reason, the ability to have relationship. These are things that set us apart from the rest of creation. And as a result of that creativity that, that God then had this wonderful relationship that he had established with us as created beings, with him as creator. All things were perfect. All things were whole. Then when Adam and Eve sinned, brokenness entered. That brokenness then changed how we interrelate with God. Instead of going to God with complete delight and unhinderedness, we now feel shame. We hide. 
When caught, we blame, we excuse, and we rebel some more. That brokenness that happened at the re- as a result of sin in the garden doesn't just reside between us and God. It actually affects and breaks the relationship that we have with our fellow mankind. With each other, it's easy to discover and to experience brokenness with each other. Consider how often we argue, even with those we love a lot. We deceive, we love to manipulate truth to where you can have the person hearing it receive it as we want them to receive it. We reject when we don't like how the other person has behaved or that they're not going the way you're going. We harm each other by various means through our words, through our actions, through our our withholding from each other relationship. And the ultimate harm we give to each other is when we actually take the life of another We're going to discover that as things progress post the fall in the garden, we're now several hundred years past the creation and sin has grown. And as a result, the brokenness has grown. The severity of the behavior has intensified. And God, as you're gonna see in today's text in Genesis 6, emotes something that I would say we can personally very much relate to. Before I read what's found in Genesis 6, if you've lived any length of time into your teen years and beyond, then you know what it's like when you invest in a relationship. That relationship has its good seasons. Things are all going well and then something happens. In spite of the years of investment and the memories made, a cutting off happens. Rejection is felt. And if you're on the receiving end, it hurts. And you wonder, why did it come to this? How is it we were so close? Marriages break up in this way. They start off so on fire in love with each other only to grow cold and rejection comes to full fruition. It hurts. And it doesn't just hurt those who are the brokenness happens. It hurts those around those relationships. Common feelings that come to us in those contexts are regret Regret for having given so much. Regret for maybe decisions that led to the fractured. Grieving, for sure, of the current state. My question to you after having described such a fracturing of a relationship that maybe was close to you is, where do you think that design of regret and grief actually comes from? God. We're made in his image. We're made like him. And God has emotions as well. And we're gonna see this starting in verse five. And so read along with me if you will. It says, the Lord saw how great the wickedness of the human race had become on the earth. And that every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was only evil all the time. The Lord saw 
how great the wickedness. I mean, think about that. Every inclination of the thoughts of a human heart was evil all the time. If we're going to be honest, it's still true today. Even for those of us that have a relationship with God, that, that the heart and the flesh has the ability to keep desiring for itself. Sin is creeping at our door as we've learned from the last couple weeks. Continuing on, verse six, this is where the emotion of God comes in. The Lord regretted that he had made human beings on the earth and his heart was deeply troubled. So the Lord said, I will wipe from the face of the earth the human race I have created and with them the animals, the birds, and the creatures that move along the ground. For I regret that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. And this is the account of Noah and his family. Noah was a righteous man, blameless, among the people of his time, and he walked faithfully with God. Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight and was full of violence. God saw how corrupt the earth had become, for all the people on earth had corrupted their ways. I can't come up with a phrase that captures the depth of what we just read. But in simple form, God regrets and grieves the condition of mankind. Even to the point where he regrets creating them. It's interesting today how much we have as a society lowered sin in each other's eyes to the point where we've kind of made God in our own perspective where he looks upon us with nothing but delight, with nothing but at a boy or at a girl that God is fully affirming of everything he sees and celebratory of all of our behaviors because God is love and there is no other aspect of God to focus on. And I think it greatly misses the heart of God. He regrets even making us. But here's the thing. While violence was intensifying, while corruption was abundant, while living, as Matthew 24, 38 says, in the days before the flood, people were simply eating and drinking and marrying and giving in marriage up to the day of, of Noah's entering the ark. They had forgotten about God, their creator. It became godless. 
that while all that is true and all that it says, it is also true that while God had regret, he still loved us. And his promises are true. And he is faithful, even though we are not. When sin entered the world, God's response was not to annihilate at that point, but rather to present the first prophetic message that there will be a time when he is going to eradicate the curse of death by the offspring of the woman, Genesis chapter three, verse 15. And so he, he has already established, I am going to restore that which is broken. And so while regret and grieving was very much of, at the heart of God, as he looks upon humanity, he also looks upon humanity with, they need my help. They need my intervention. And out of love, not condemnation, out of love, he writes the redemption story. And Noah's story is a micro epic to the greater epic of our salvation. By the end of this message, I hope that you can see a direct correlation of what happens in Noah's life as to what can happen in yours. In verse 9 or 8, it says that in light of this regret and this grieving, he says, but Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. He found favor in Noah. And we find the reason why he gives favor to Noah is because in verse 9, he says, Noah was a righteous man. So God declared him righteous, which is a term of perfection. It's a term of, I look upon with satisfaction. Nothing need corrected. God declared Noah righteous, even though he himself was also a man tainted with that inclination in the heart as being evil. But the difference between Noah and the rest was in spite of that sin, somehow, he was faithful in the midst of a tsunami of evil around him, was faithful to God. So you see this being this statement where God declares him righteous, which by the way, is the first time God declares anybody in scripture is righteous. It's the first person. We get a sense that there is, when you see the evidence of this, that when God spoke, Noah responded. There was a fear of the Lord and therefore a submission to the word of the Lord. This righteousness was evident among a people that had lived their lives in denial that the creator God even existed. Peter refers to him as a preacher of righteousness in 2 Peter 2. That just by the mere life of choosing to live in fear of the Lord and, and living in response to the word, Noah's life preached a righteousness that was lacking in his, in his society. And as a result, it says that among the people, he was blameless. Again, not sinless. But you couldn't blame him for the calamity on the earth. 
He lived by a totally different code of conduct. As other people just simply ate, drank, and married with no consciousness towards God, (laughs) he lived recognizing that God is present and lived his life by that code. And then as a result, he was faithful. Faithful, as it says, is how he served God. He was faithful. And and when everybody else would leave away and not worship the creator, he was faithful to acknowledge the creator. And by the way, he's not the first person to be called faithful. He is the second. The first person called faithful is his great-grandfather, Enoch. In Genesis chapter 5, verse 22, Enoch was declared as a faithful man, and then God did not allow him to suffer death and took him before death would come. So like his great-grandfather, Noah was faithful. He stayed the course in spite of the severe moral decay, and he had a track record as a result, a track record of trusting and obeying the Lord. In this passage in Hebrews chapter 11, where it talks about the faithful people of old, Noah's mentioned in verse seven, by faith, Noah, when warned about things not yet seen, in holy fear, built an ark to save his family. By his faith, he condemned the world and became heir of the righteousness that is in keeping with faith. So the faithful God who said to Adam and Eve, I am not going to destroy you, but rather I am going to save you. As time has gone on, things have gotten worse. God is grieving. He regrets, but he is still faithful. He has not violated his own holy ordinance, and he has not violated his own holy character. And then he sees Noah abiding by him in faith, Trusting that God would see this, God declared him as righteous, gave him the tag of righteousness, that that's how God sees him as righteous. And therefore, through Noah, a righteousness is going to come through his line. And it's going to come by faith. It's another statement to the coming under a new covenant found in Jesus Christ. So back to the text, we see here that God is preparing Noah's heart to explain what I'm going to have you do for over a hundred years is build something. And you're going to build it because I'm about to judge the earth. So verse 13, so God said to Noah, I'm going to put an end to all people for the earth is filled with violence because of them. I'm surely going to destroy both them and the earth. So make yourself an ark of cypress wood. Make rooms in it and coat it with pitch inside and out. This is how you are to build it. The ark is to be 300 cubits long, 50 cubits wide, 30 cubits high. Make a roof for it, leaving below the roof an opening one cubit high all around. Put a door on the, in the side of the ark and make lower, middle, and upper decks. 
I'm going to bring floodwaters on the earth to destroy all life under the heavens, every creature that has breath of life in it, everything on earth will perish. Everything will perish. I know that, myself included, Noah and the ark is considered one of the best childhood themes for an infant nursery. It's considered a great theme to put on the walls within our children's ministries around the world. It's great story to put in a little children's book to read. But I think we don't really appreciate the judgment the flood actually was. A painting done by Glenn Eshelman, founder of Sight and Sound, gives me a picture that I believe is from the perspective of God. Consider what you see. I wouldn't paint this as a mural on a child's bedroom wall. But this is the image that God saw. And it's the noise that Noah and his family heard. God bringing his judgment upon all living things was no small matter. God's heart had been grieving for some time. Now, I believe it's an important thing to understand the story of Noah and his family, and yes, to be bring delight into the story when you look at how God saved Noah and his family. But let's consider for a moment that Noah and his family had to be on that ark for one year and 10 days. With all those animals, one year and 10 days. The dairy farmers around here are anxious for the springs to come so they can get the manure from our dairy cows out after just three months of being shut in. And we all suffer for it. Friends from outside the area are always blown away by the aroma of our, our county during those seasons and times. But imagine an ark for one year and 10 days being your home with all those animals. The first days of that being on that ark was probably spent in grieving because they had friends and family that did not get onto the ark. They heard their cries. They heard their shouts. After a hundred years of maybe ridicule, now they heard their beckoning cry to save them. But God had shut the door. Then they had to go through the next several days undoing maybe what they had heard trying to remember everything that they possibly could of how things used to be 
and then wondering how things will become. The rains had stopped. They're floating for days on end. They decide to find out if it's safe to leave the ark. So they send out a raven. No doing. It's not time yet. Repeated. Not time yet. Dove comes. Let the dove out. Dove returns. Still nothing. Sends out a dove again. And in Genesis chapter 8 verse 11, the dove brings back a twig of an olive branch. God's promise is fulfilled. They were saved and spared. And God was bringing new life onto the earth as he said he would. Don't lose this image of the dove because it's the dove that the Hebrew people consider as being the symbol of God. Because of this moment of God's faithfulness and sparing humanity, the Hebrew people, whenever they want to refer to the image of God and give him a symbol, they choose the dove because it was the provision of the dove that showed that God's promises are true and he is faithful. God uses this later when Jesus comes and he is baptized and when he comes out of the water, the Holy Spirit comes on Jesus in the form of a dove. And then God says with his voice from heaven, this is my son with whom I am well pleased. Therefore, cementing to the Hebrews that were there in that moment, whose voice it was, because they saw the dove and they heard the voice. They knew it was God speaking. This dove is held onto with great reverence. So should we remember what God has done. God establishes in verse 18 a covenant with Noah and will be uh, sealed later. But here we hear it for the first time. But I will establish with you a covenant and you will enter the ark, you and your sons and your wife and your sons' wives with you. You are to bring into the ark two of all living creatures, male and female, to keep them alive with you. Two of every kind of bird, of every kind of animal, and of every kind of creature that moves along the ground will come to you to be kept alive. You are to take every kind of food that is to be eaten and store it away as food for you and for them. Noah did everything just as God had commanded him. I make with you a covenant. It's the first time that term is used in scripture and is not the last. It is argued that the first covenant of scripture, however, was with Adam and Eve when he said, if you do not eat of this tree of the garden, you will live. And this garden will be for you. God was faithful. Adam and Eve was not. And therefore they experienced death. Noah's covenant, if you obey me and you do this, I will save you and your family and I will start over and replenish the earth. God was faithful and so was Noah and therefore life started anew. The next covenant you're going to read in scripture and we'll be talking about that in a few weeks is the covenant with Abraham. 
In this case, if you leave your people where you're at now and you go to where I'm sending you, I will make you the father of many nations. Abraham went. And as a result of his offspring, many nations have been formed. And today we read of those nations fighting each other. God was faithful. So was Abraham. The next covenant you will see is Moses, where they were given the law, and it says, if you follow the law, you will be blessed. If you disobey the law, you will find the curse. The next covenant is David's covenant, to which he was told, your throne will be established forever. Jesus is from the seed of David. And as a result, His throne is established forever through Jesus. Which leads to the ultimate covenant of it all, the new covenant. When Jesus was participating with the first time what we call communion, he gave them the bread and says, this is my body, which is for you. And then he took of the cup and said, drink of it. This is my blood shed for you. This will be the sign of a new covenant. That my blood will be sufficient. A once and for all sacrifice. The perfect lamb of God. That by faith in that blood. I will sanctify you. And you will be my people. And I will be your God. By faith we trust in that. And by faith we trust that God then sees us as righteous. In the same way that that there is a seal to many of these covenants, there was a seal to this covenant, and it's found in chapter 9. If you can turn over to chapter 9 of Genesis. In verse 13, God seals the covenant. So he had said, I make a covenant with Noah prior to the flood, and now he seals the covenant in verse 13 when he says, I have set my rainbow in the clouds, and it will be the sign of the covenant between me and the earth. Whenever I bring clouds over the earth and the rainbow appears in the clouds, I will remember my covenant between me and you and all living creatures of every kind. Never again will the waters become a flood to destroy all life. Whenever the rainbow appears in the clouds, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and all living creatures of every kind on the earth. So God said to Noah, this is the sign of the covenant I have established between me and all of life on the earth. God sealed his covenant with Noah by the sign of the rainbow. Perhaps today a rainbow will be shown. What do you think? How do you define it when you look at that rainbow? Mankind does not want to be reminded of who's faithful and who is not. So we apply different definitions to the rainbow. But there are only one true definition of the rainbow. And it was by which the rainbow was even created. And that is to remind us that our creator God is faithful. So when you see the rainbow, remember that God is faithful. God is faithful That when he said judgment will never come again by water, we can know without a shadow of a doubt 
that God's word is true. So the next time you see a rainbow, thank God for his faithfulness. Regardless of how it's displayed, you apply to it its true definition that God is faithful. He looks at it and it reminds him that he is going to be faithful to all of mankind and the creatures of the earth. He will never again destroy by water. God is faithful. And to all those who the Lord gives the gift of faith, where we walk faithful and trusting in what he declares, he declares those people as righteous. That's the new covenant. Noah is the micro example. He is the first example of that you walk faithful with God and God declares you righteous. He sees you as perfect. He sees you as holy. In spite of whatever imperfections you have, there is something of coverage that comes over that. And in the new covenant, it's the blood of Christ. God sees through the blood of Christ only when he sees those who by faith trust in the work of Christ. And he declares us righteous. Even though we still sin and we still have moments of shame, we still have moments of blame, we still have moments where we want to hide from God. If we by faith trust in his work and confess those sins and repent of those sins, he says he'll forgive us and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And the incredible thing is that he sees us whiter than snow. But outside the blood of Christ, for those who do not have faith in his work, he sees the sin for all that it is. And there is regret and grief and judgment that comes. But that's why with God, he says, I'm about restoring my holiness demands justice over that sin, but my love demands the grace that I provide. By faith, we trust in that work. My question to you is, do you have a relationship with God that is by faith? Do you have a restored relationship with God that can only come by one way. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one can come to the Father except through him. There are no other paths towards restoration with God. As much as some try and create unique other paths, only one path, and it's exclusive, is, to, is towards God, and that's through Jesus Christ alone. Consider this. Romans 5, 8, verses 18 and 19. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinning greatly, still steeped in our sin, Christ died for us. There was no pre-demonstration of faith. There was no work on our part to be found worthy of such a work of Christ. He did it ahead and then as he says, consequently, just as one trespass or sin resulted in the condemnation for all people, that done by Adam, so also one righteous act, this done by Christ, resulted in justification and life for all people. For just as through the disobedience of the one man, Adam, the many were made sinners, so also through the obedience of the one man, Jesus, the many will be made righteous. 
Oh, to have God, the creator God of the universe, declare over you, you are righteous. And it can only happen by faith. So to have a restored relationship with God, you have to trust in God that his promises are true and that he is faithful. This isn't just about knowing that he's faithful and saying that he is faithful. It's to trust in that. The demons know he's faithful. The demons know that what he says is true, but they don't entrust themselves to him. We're also to fear the word of the Lord as Noah did. He feared the word of the Lord in spite of what was going on around him. He didn't try to redefine God or redefine morality. He trusted that what God said is true and he lived by it. And he stayed faithful regardless of the ridicule or difficulty. So also we must stay faithful regardless of the ridicule or difficulty as our society becomes more and more strange to the idea of a one true God who creates a one path way back to himself. Our society will not like those words. Will you stay faithful to what God has already said? And lastly, give thanks to God. Give thanks to God for the gift of faith and for the righteous identity that is given to you under the new covenant. How can we say thanks to something so great? Knowing all that we've done that's worthy of judgment and he calls us righteous. Our response should be, Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus, for giving me faith and therefore declaring me righteous. Let's pray. So Jesus, I give you all praise, glory, and honor. (laughs) There is nothing in my life that is worthy of being called righteous other than to trust in the work that you, Jesus, have done. And then you can, I can understand that by that blood and that blood alone, how God could look upon me and say, whiter than snow. Jesus, thank you for making a way where it's possible for us to have hope of being restored to the Almighty God in spite of our sins. Thank you, Father God, for not giving up on humanity and allowing the story of Noah to lead to our salvation. And then to bring about the new covenant where we're on this side of the cross and we can see that hope realized, that which they saw from afar, we now know. So Jesus, you have provided the way and for that we celebrate you. But I I would ask, Lord, that if there's anybody in this room that has not seen you as the way and given themselves over to you, that you would draw them to your heart now, that they may be repent of their sins, confess of their sins, and turn to you as the all-sufficient one to know that you are the restorer to the relationship to our creator. I pray this in Jesus' name, amen. You may stand, please.
Noah didn't have any clue what a flood would look like. He didn't know how the boat necessarily would work. Those things were unprecedented. But God made a way. Adam and Eve couldn't fully comprehend what it would mean that there would be a day of full restoration would happen. They just had to trust from afar that it would, that which they had messed up. And then all the generations until the cross, they had no idea how it is that there was going to be a all-sufficient lamb, blood of the lamb that was going to be able to cover sins, past, present, future. They, they, they couldn't understand how that could happen. They could only see it from afar. That's the story of faith. I don't know how Jesus is going to come back and reestablish his kingdom. I can only see it from afar. But by faith, I trust in it. And by faith, I know that whenever I breathe my last, I'm going to be standing before God. And I want you to I want you too to find yourself standing before God, seeing him for the faith that he's given you and the preparation by the way of Jesus Christ, how he's provided that righteousness that you can enter in without hesitation, with confidence. It's by faith. And if you've never had that faith, I invite you to give yourself to Jesus Christ. He is a good God and he desires to save you from the ultimate judgment that's beyond this life. And it's not by water, it's by fire. But God, in the same way there was but Noah, but God has provided a way and it's through Jesus. For God so loved that world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life through Jesus Christ. So give yourself to him, trust in him, let him give you the gift of faith and then let him call you righteous. If you'd like to pray with someone, we'll have people that will be in the encounter room that will be glad to pray with you, to point you to Jesus. I'll be up front as well. Love to talk to you about Christ as well. He is the way, the truth, and the life and we go through him to be restored to our creator God. Amen. Go in peace knowing we have a faithful God. You're dismissed.